Hello, my name is Chris Salter and welcome to the Junior Family Law Podcast. A collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. Hello, my name is Carrie Stoneham. I'm an associate at Burgess Salmon, having trained at Erwin Mitchell in Bristol, and I qualified in 2016, so I'm four years PQE, and I moved to Burgess Salmon in 2017. Today, I'm joined by David Hickmott, a four-year PQE solicitor at Mills and Reeve, and Abby Pierce, a newly qualified solicitor who's also at Mills and Reeve. In this episode, we're going to be discussing pensions and section 2.13 of the For Me. So, first of all, how would we get to this stage and why would we be looking at completing section 2.13 of the Form E? Well, the Form E is a detailed form setting out the financial details of the party who's completing it. Both parties in divorce and financial remedy proceedings need to complete these and it sets out the needs of the party completing the form um, and their children, if applicable. And of course, both parties have a duty to provide full and frank disclosure throughout family law proceedings. Um, The Form E is the usual method to provide disclosure. They can be exchanged voluntarily before proceedings have been issued or as part of the court timetable. The Form E is part of the information gathering process which is necessary before settlement negotiations can begin and they give a full overview of both parties' financial positions. The court, of course, has the power to make a pension sharing order or a pension attachment order. So it's therefore key to understand the parties' respective pension provisions before any consideration of an appropriate settlement can be undertaken. Thanks, Kerry. I'm going to talk about the first three boxes of section 2.13, looking at basically the information that you need to gain from the client in order to insert into for me about the pensions. Pensions are typically extremely complicated and clients might have very little understanding of the pension provision that they actually have. And so it's really important at the outset that you have a kind of information gathering exercise with the clients where you gain as much information as you possibly can from them. This might be them telling you exactly what pensions they have or if they're not completely sure it's gaining a detailed history of their employment so for example if they were employed 20 years ago for a long period with a different employer they might obviously have a scheme that they have forgotten about it's really important that you begin to gather documents at an early stage and a key document to gain is form p which is used to basically gather information about a client's pension entitlements Generally, a court can direct Form P at the first appointment, but it's best practice to get this sorted at as early stage as possible. In terms of completing Form P, if the client is unaware of the details to complete the form, they can, if it's an occupational pension, they might be able to get the information from their employer, or there is a, a website on the government page where it lists out various different pension schemes that has a lot of the contact details that you can access from there. It's also important to get the client to gain a um, benefit statement in relation to pension schemes because this will need to be attached to section 2.13. These generally take a little bit of time to get together so the best practice is to ask the client to get them and if they can't be obtained in time for for me disclosure you can attach to the for me the letter to the pension provider showing that the client has attempted to obtain it. So we will start to work our way through section 2.13 of the Form E. If you want to follow through this, you should be able to download from a link near this podcast the page of the Form E which we're looking at. Um, So Abby, do you want to start by uh, looking at the first uh, three boxes of section 2.13? Great, so 
David, I think uh, perhaps one of the most important things to talk about are the different types of pension scheme. Um, so perhaps you could uh, talk us through the basics on that. Yeah, of course. One of the first distinctions to make I think, is between an occupational pension and a private pension. An occupational pension is a pension that is provided through your employer. Important to be aware of those because they may have additional benefits, but they also may have restrictions on the type of transfer that can be made. A private pension is one that an individual sets up themselves. So a SIP is a good example of a, of a private pension scheme. In terms of the different types of pensions that you can get once you've decided whether it's occupational or private, you may have heard reference to defined contribution or defined benefits. So a defined benefit scheme is also known as a final salary scheme. And that's where you and or the pension provider or your employer puts in a certain amount every month, but then you are guaranteed a certain benefit at the end. So it may be a percentage of the final salary you had if it's through an employer. Um, and these are sort of the most valuable and the most sought after types of schemes, really. A lot of public sector pension schemes are defined benefits. So look out for NHS schemes, army schemes, police pensions, and be aware of these in particular, because a lot of public sector schemes uh, run two different versions. So there might be an older version that you need to be aware of as well. A defined contribution scheme uh, also known as a cash purchase scheme, is the type of pension that most people will have with their employer. Uh, that's where you make regular contributions, maybe the employer makes regular contributions, and you build up what is effectively an investment pot, which can be accessed further down the line at your retirement to purchase generally an annuity. So these tend to not have a great return on investment but are the most common type of scheme that you'll probably come across. It's also worth mentioning just the need to be aware of things that may not look like pensions but actually fall within pension rules and I think Carrie has had experience of that. Yeah I had a, um, a case recently where um, my client um, had a, a large NHS pension and when she provided the, the information from the scheme which included the cash equivalent value um, it transpired that her NHS pension was split between the 2008 NHS scheme and the 2015 NHS scheme so she had two separate cash equivalent values and they needed to be listed separately at section 2.1. And on reading the information from the provider, it was clearly stated that there would need to be two separate pension sharing orders if both of those schemes were going to be shared. So it's, it's just a note to make sure that you always read all of the information a client provides from their pension provider. It's not just a case of flicking through to find the cash equivalent value, which we'll talk a little bit more about shortly. It's also just making sure you've read through all of the information the scheme has provided, because that may be crucial at a later stage, uh, for example, when you're drafting a consent order or a pension sharing annex. Moving on to the cash equivalent value, it's worth noting that um, you need to ensure that whatever information the client has provided 
does clearly state what's known as the cash equivalent value. Sometimes they'll just provide you with an annual statement of of benefits from their provider, which is not necessarily a cash equivalent value. So you need to make sure you've checked the documentation. You should also make sure that if they have provided a cash equivalent value, that it's dated within the last 12 months. And if you don't have that, then you need to as Abby explained earlier, request request a cash equivalent value for, directly from the pension scheme. Uh, and one of the easiest ways to do that is with a Form P. And generally with the Form P, you can provide a form of authority that's signed by the client um, authorising the pension scheme to provide the information you need. But also you can come across uh, valuations that are marked as not suitable for divorce. David, have you? I think you may have come across this before you were mentioning um, earlier. It's just something to be aware of that when you have, for example, an occupational pension, you'll generally get a annual statement which includes a valuation. Quite often, clients will say, "Here you go. Here's the information you need," but that valuation will mark as will be marked saying not suitable for divorce or not suitable for pension sharing, which indicates there might be some aspect of the valuation that hasn't been taken into account. It's just something to be aware of and to reiterate the importance of doing those form P's nice and early. Exactly. I completely agree. So going back to what you were talking about, David, in terms of the different types of scheme, and in particular defined benefit and public sector schemes, I know we were all discussing earlier the importance of sort of flagging early on whether the advice of, of an actuary is going to be required. Abby, I know we were we were talking Talking about this uh, perhaps you want to just touch on this yeah quite right Gary so we are not qualified to give clients formal financial advice and therefore it is really important that they are aware that they can get a financial advisor to guide them and if there is the prospect of there being a pension share in order and particularly if there are defined benefit schemes or any uh, complicating factors within any of the pension schemes that the clients have um, they might want to consider um, instructing a Pode, which is a pension on divorce experts further down the line. It's quite important to flag to the client that it might be necessary to instruct the Pode to do a single joint expert report, reporting on both your client and their ex-spouse's pensions. So yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think at the moment, I'm, I'm sure you'll both agree, it's taking rather a long time to get experts to prepare reports. Uh, it takes a number of months um, to get a report. Plus, you need to factor in the long time scales from the pension providers to get the cash equivalent values in the first place. Um, so I think the earlier you can flag up that an expert will likely be required, the better. So you can get them instructed um, to get a report as soon as possible. And I, I think it's really important to bear in mind that many clients will need a financial advisor in any event. For example, if you, you have a case where your client has got very little by way of pension, but their spouse has, has a large pension provision it may be likely that a pension sharing order is going to be appropriate depending on the circumstances of the case and if your client is going to be in receipt of a pension sharing order then they will need some financial advice in order to set up their own pension scheme 
to in order to receive that pension share um, if appropriate. I won't go into too much detail about that, but it, it's just it's just something to, to think about as early on as possible. So working through the form, the next box we come to is the date the cash equivalent value was calculated. Um, just a note to say that if you don't have the cash equivalent value when you're completing the form, you should include a, a copy of your letter to the pension provider requesting the cash equivalent value so that the other side can see that that's been requested. Yeah, carrying on from that, Carrie, another important thing to point out to your clients is that pension providers do have a legal obligation to provide the policyholder with a free statement um, a year. So they're entitled to obtain one free one a year, which a lot of clients aren't aware of. Yeah, exactly. And yet another reason to make sure you do get on with things if it turns out you are going to need a report because you don't want to end up in a situation where you've got to re-request cash equivalent value again because 12 months have passed. So definitely a good point to bear in mind. The next box on the form asks whether the pension is in payment or drawdown. This, of course, means whether the client is actually receiving income from the pension. If they are, they should have a statement from the pension provider which gives details of uh, the income they're receiving. So if they are receiving income from a pension, then that would need to be included at section 2.19 of the Form E. And that's where you provide the documentation for that. If a pension's in payment, it will still have a cash equivalent value and it is still capable of being shared. So you do still need to obtain that information and complete section 2.13. On that point, you also need to bear in mind the parties or your client's state pension position. David, uh, did you want to talk a bit about that for us? Yeah, of course. Obviously, most people will have some kind of state pension entitlement. You might want to include a forecast. You can get a indication online through the .gov website. If you need a more detailed and accurate forecast of what the state pension is going to be, you your client can download and fill in forms BR9, BR20. Uh, it's just worth noting that state pension can't be shared like a a private or an occupational pension can be shared, but it might be relevant if you have older clients who are likely to be in receipt of it soon, because it will obviously impact their income. And of course, the details of the state pension can be filled in at section 2.18 if they're in receipt of state pension. That's where you'd include that information. Um, And I think we were discussing, David, weren't we, that we probably wouldn't send off forms BR19 and BR20 for younger clients. It's generally clients who are approaching retirement age that we would generally do that. Um, I think you'd agree. Yeah, I'd completely agree. As, as I say, it can't be shared. So there's no capital consideration there. It's really just about whether it's going to affect income. And obviously, if your client is in their 30s, it's not going to affect their income for a very long time. So it's unlikely to be particularly relevant. Exactly. Okay. Um, following on through the form, well, the next few boxes refer to the PPF, which is the Pension Protection Fund. So the Pension Protection Fund is a fund that protects people who have a defined benefit pension um, but their employer has become insolvent so in that case the pension protection fund will step in to ensure that members are protected and will still receive a pension 
the client is likely to be aware if their pension has entered the pension protection fund and they will likely have documentation regarding that um, which you need to include it's not something that's encountered very often the three of us were discussing this earlier um, and I don't think any of us have had a case where this has been a major issue but it is just something you need to be aware of and when it asks if the PPF compensation is capped which is the the last box at that section that relates to the compensation a member can receive from the PPF and that can vary depending on whether the member is at the normal retirement age for the scheme or not it should all be covered in the documentation your client should have from the PPF or obviously can be obtained from the PPF directly so we've been through section 2.13 just to flag whether there are any other uh, points to think about Abby are there any resources you found particularly helpful when when looking at pensions? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's no secret that pensions are complicated, especially for junior lawyers. And so the starting point should be looking at the PAG report, which was produced in July 2019 by the Pension Advisory Group. That basically has everything you could possibly need to know uh, on a first look. Um, and it's broken down in a really helpful way. There's a really useful executive summary at the beginning, which I think is about 14 pages um, and gives you a good overview. There's also Advice Now have just produced a survival guide to pensions on divorce, which basically takes bits from the PAG report and really simplifies it and makes it accessible for clients. So not only is it good to recommend to clients to read, it's really helpful for junior lawyers as well because it, it really breaks down everything that you need to know in a really accessible way. You can access the Advice Now Survival Guide online for free or you can pay £20 to get a hard copy sent to you. But I really would recommend that. And then there's a whole host of case law, but particularly His Honour Judge Hess's judgment in W&H, which was in February 2020, which is a very helpful judgment and again covers some really important points that you'll see covered in a lot of articles and commentary surrounding pensions. Yeah, that, those are my go-to resources that I'd recommend. Yeah, I completely agree. I use the PAG report a lot. Um, it's really accessible and easy to read and split out into sections. So I completely agree. I, I use that a lot. Just a point that I came across a while ago in terms of tracing lost pensions. So you may have a client who they might know who their if they had a personal pension, they might know who the provider was, but they have no details, in which case that's pretty easy. You can just write to the, the pension provider with the form P and form of authority and you'll likely be able to get what you need. If you're tracing a workplace pension, then of course you can contact the, the employer or former employer and if that employer provided access to a personal scheme then the employer should have the details of that pension provider if you're still struggling and the client still just they just don't know they don't have the contact details of their old employer or they just don't know who the provider was of an old personal pension they might have had long ago um, then you can contact the pension tracing service uh, this is a free service and it searches a database of i think it's over two hundred thousand pensions and it will try and find the contact details that you need. So you can either call them or um, they've got a form online. So that can help you if you're trying to track down the details to, to find a, 
a pension scheme. So not to not to make things too complicated, uh, David, I think we were just briefly talking about lifetime allowance earlier as well, which is probably something to just be aware of. Yeah, it's just something to flag and discuss with your clients if they have very large pensions, either a single very large pension or pensions um, over a few different schemes. There is a limit on how much you can put into a pension and still take the tax benefits. So if you're seeing big numbers, kind of over a million pounds, then you should talk to your clients about whether they have protection from the possible tax consequences. It's something they should be aware of, definitely worth discussing at an early stage. Great, thank you. So we've now reached the end of the podcast. Uh, So thank you very much, David and Abby, for your thoughts. And thank you all for listening. You have been listening to the Junior Family Law Podcast, a collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode.